to Discograffiti's Private Press, the Patreon-exclusive podcast that takes buried treasure one step farther. This treasure's buried so goddamn deep, there's probably no way you'll ever find it in your lifetime, not at least in its original iteration. And so thus, if music's your thing, I mean really, really your thing, and obviously it is, because here you are, you will not experience any more value for your listening dollar than with this series. One thing we can all agree on in here, our favorite dessert is definitely mint, but we'll settle for near mint in a pinch. I'm your co-host, Dave Gebro, and before you go getting uh, yourself into a tizzy there, uh, I know what you're thinking. What have they done with my theme song, my always reliable theme song? There's an answer for that. Also, I didn't sign up for any Patreon kind of deal. So what's the story there, man? Don't worry. This is simply episode one of a whole new show called Discograffiti's The Private Press with Paul Major. Uh, Almost every week, it's going to be behind the paywall on Patreon, but seeing as I'm a good-hearted sort of chap uh, once in a while, including the premiere episode, I wanted to throw all you guys a bone. And I want to keep doing that every once in a while. Uh, Maybe every five or six shows or so on, uh, we'll put it out there for everyone to hear. This is the premiere episode of Discograffiti's The Private Press with Paul Major, and it's coming at you free of charge today. Anyway, I'm your co-host, Dave Gebro, and my co-host is an honest-to-God rock star, an author, and one of the most notorious record collectors that ever walked this sweet swinging sphere. After playing in bands in St. Louis and Los Angeles, this son of a bee moved to New York in 1978 and spent the next few years embroiled in the city's punk scene, notably as part of the proto-speed metal band The Sorcerers. And then what do you know, this guy began a mail-order LP business whose mailers one would tear open with the ravenous zeal of brains to the undead. His catalog descriptions are what drove people wild, consistently transcending rock criticism with a series of philosophically sound aesthetic principles that serve to guide the way forward with ease for the uninitiated. The new worlds he offered to lucky listeners over the years translated with crunchy sonic perfection to his metamorphosis as a mother-effing Cro-Magnon rock star. In 1997, he began captaining Endless Boogie, which to date have released six LPs and a gaggle of EPs. And then five years ago, in ye old days of 2017, this renaissance man for the ages authored the book Feel the Music, the Psychedelic Worlds of... I had to mumble that so as to not give away the goods. More on that later, because holy shit, boys and girls, he looks like a caveman, but don't get it twisted. This paleolith is one knockout punch of a sweetie tootie patootie. Lads and ladies of the Patreon Supersphere, please, for the love of Christ, would you explode forth ecstatically in your pre of what's to come because it really is about to and all over your face for that matter damn it here he is paul major yes here i am there you are and i'm with you now and and it's about time too right yes let's talk about let's talk about the build-up to this to this very moment christmas of uh, of 2021, we're in the midst of uh, of a soul sucking, uh, skin flaying, um, uh, spirit ravaging pandemic, and my wife hits the nail on the head with my chronica present because uh, she's Christian, I'm Jewish, uh, and she got me your book. I had never heard of the book, and to be to be fair, I'd heard of Endless Boogie, but I didn't know you by name. I open this book and I'm like, what in the fuck is this? The closest corollary that I can think of is Dominic Priori's Look, Listen, Vibrate, Smile, which, by the way, had a similar effect on me about 30 years previous. So I start reading your book, then I start listening to the music in your book, then I start your book over and read it with rapt attention and start waking up in the middle of the night to listen to these records. And it has a uh it, it performs a sort of you know soundectomy on my on my being and it has a total 
it really revolutionizes kind of the way that I listen to stuff. And, uh, you know, so I start trying to seek you out and it's not an overnight process. It was a lot easier to find, uh, you know, a, a lot of people that I thought would be much harder to find. But finally, I found you. And over the course of months, we've been talking about putting this show together. Yes, I'm so glad you found me. And I know why it's hard to find me because I'm the kind of person, especially uh, enhanced by isolation and COVID, who really lives with what's right in front of me. So uh, right. I cringe when I open my computer sometimes. Uh, when I did do social media, I was really excited first on Facebook because I can post all these songs and freak people out. And then the snowball got bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, I realized I had to run away from it. <laughs> so uh, it. Uh, I'm so glad you found me. And it's... Uh, and it worked out great because over the course of, I don't I don't remember the exact moment or or what what month even that we got in touch. It, it was in 2022, um, right? Today is July 30th that we're taping this, but we've probably been talking about this show and the prospects of it for five months, pretty easily because we we were uh, talking about it before april and then april i was away on tour with the band and then we talked some more and then my uh technical incompetence slowed things down as far as uh uh getting recordings together and so forth then i went off on tour again and now i'm back and so it's like this thing i have this feeling in my head it's a long time coming and i'm extra psyched now that Me we're too. doing <laughs> No, it worked out perfectly because in the interim, instead of just diving into this thing and wondering, am I going to get along with this guy? You, you and I have developed a friendship. So now with this show, there's, um, you know, a, a repartee that's built from countless phone conversations of, hey, are we starting this this week or what? Right. In <laughs> fact, that sort of, you know, sort of jives with, uh, my uh sense of music too because we've uh developed a human relationship and my relationship to all these records number one is the human being behind them when i hear these records i don't think of them as a separate thing i don't think of them in the context of some art that uh can be appreciated by somebody divorced from the story behind it and the human being behind it and also the fact that since music only exists in your head anyways now even the old music it's only exists now in every person's head so it's the human connection and one of the things that excited me when i came up with the term real people with kenneth higney is that uh i felt like even before i spoke to him I was connecting with his mind. Yeah. Because, you know, these people, I don't know if the, uh, you know, I don't know what percentage of these recording artists, and they are a recording artists, just like, uh, you know, John Landis once told me, uh, do you know what a filmmaker, or asked me, do you know what a filmmaker is? And I said, uh, what? And he said, it's somebody who's made a film. It's as simple as that. So if any one of these people, go into a recording studio they're a recording artist as much as paul mccartney as much as mick jagger uh, absolutely so <clears throat> so these people i don't know what percentage of them go in thinking this is the first of many records or this is it this is my chance this is the one chance i'll ever get mm -hmm. so the latter category those people are dumping their souls onto the lathe if they use a lathe i don't know if i'm if that's actually the uh, terminology here, but <clears throat> is it, is a lathe what they would still use? Uh, yes. Uh, especially since we're talking uh, vinyl and right. pre-digital world and the time when somebody who was driven to make music couldn't just use band, you know, these garage band things and stuff and sit around just doing things. They had a huge struggle ahead of them first. Almost none of them had the capacity to record. So they had to get a studio together. They had to get the records pressed. They get the records back and they'd have no way to get them around out of the neighborhood, basically for the most case. Uh, so it's a driven artist sort of thing. And I, I, I totally, uh, 
one of the key things I realized when I was listening to these is this art cuts as deep as anything as famous because they're all human beings expressing what life is like for them. Some of them wanted but to be stars. But, but a, lot of, a lot of these people, it cuts deeper because there's no commercial considerations. It's more, the emphasis is more on, I have to make sure that the reflection on wax is absolutely 100% uh, exactly as I am, am on the inside, because this is my one chance. And, you know, uh, commercial artists are not thinking that way. No, no. And uh, I know some of these people that I did track down were, you know, had those ambitions. But at that stage, they were trying to put themselves across the best they could. And uh, basically, one of the beauties of, of, uh, the more isolated these people are, the better, the less they're, they're not tainted by those things, the commercial music right. business. And uh, that dilutes so many you know, great records uh, and so many albums, of course, famous albums uh, we've all heard where you just cannot re uh, get it out of your mind that this has been beating a dead horse to get to the final product and putting a barrier between the mind and the expression of the person and what somebody else outside there will hear. So it, that, it, it, that's beautifully said because you even look at uh, an artist who is known for cutting deep. Well, let's say somebody like Bowie, you can look at any one of the, incarnations that he's utilized in the 70s and see them as blockades between who he is and what he's feeling i mean how the fuck am i supposed to look i love bowie don't get me wrong this is like grist for the mill uh, as a you know potential argument for private press and the intimacy thereof <clears throat> because how am i supposed to get some kind of idea of who bowie is as a person by examining the thin white duke yes there be, there, there becomes uh, this whole image thing that does become a blockade and one of the great things about the beatles and people like that is they manage to transcend that and reach people of all walks of life and you could detect things in themselves and that's not always the case with, uh, you know, of course, with most popular music and popular music today, when I walk into a store and I hear what the current hits are, that is extremely the other direction. Instantly, you hear nothing but calculation with money in mind. And uh, the thing I hate, auto-tune with vocals, to make the vocal perfect, where a vocal for me, my favorite singers... You know, famous singers would, would be people like Bob Dylan and and so forth, just because it's coming from the from the soul. And and they, they seem, you know, to be a little bit aware that uh, life is not perfect. Life is transient. Capturing feeling is about now, not about making some you know dead statue for all times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, there's I, I don't have anything against uh, music that's created for profit or, you know, I don't have anything against artistic obfuscation either. Nothing. Um, and and frankly, uh, without having had an explicit conversation with you about it, I get the idea that you don't deride that other kind of stuff. Oh, not at all. I'm a huge pop music fan, for one thing, and some of the most you know, from one perspective, it would be a name, but from the other perspective, it's a catchy song. It creates a little movie in your mind and it's relatable to everybody. I mean, I even love songs like Brandy by the Looking Glass. Or, that, you mean, I mean, that's a great song. And by the way, Jersey Boys, that's that's good stuff. You know, that's a great example of uh, good, good music is good music, man. You know, I even like Phil Collins. I don't give a shit. I'm 50 years old. I don't care what, you know, I'm way beyond deeming something a guilty pleasure. For me, it's just a pleasure at this point. Yes, it, it's the pleasure. And it, it so many people, uh, including myself, uh, I have detected that, you know, this thing in where you're you're limiting yourself. Your mind isn't open if you start judging things outside of themselves with these preconceived notions that get, get in your head. So I'm open to everything. There are places I never have time to go just because of, you know, 
how long I'm here or something, but I love all, all kinds of music. If I had time, I could probably even get into industrial music and I've heard some free jazz and some things like that, but there's never time. But I know in every angle music can come at you from there's uh, are things that are truly brilliant and va valuable. So I, I don't rule any, anything out, uh, from that perspective, you know, there's certainly things that bum me out. Yeah, uh, you know, look, if I was to, you know, open my ears and open myself up to somebody who's trying to, you know, throw down some suggestions and there was a snootiness involved uh, with it and a yes. highfalutin kind of a deal, uh, then there's not much that would separate you from uh, any one of, you know, countless rock critics and I, with this show, with Discography, I'm trying to get away from that. And this is really kind of about, you know, the hoi polloi with great taste discovering this stuff. This is not, uh, you know, trying to beat a dead horse with the same kinds of, you know, rock critic terminology that have been bandied about for 50 years. The most stringent rules definitely seem to be, uh, you know, when you first got to New York, there was the most stringent sorts of rules to be parts of those cliques. Oh yeah, the punk cliques, exactly. It's it's all meet the new boss, same as the old boss shit. And there were good glimmers there, like when my Heart of Glass came out by Blondie and, you know, there was all of this punk versus disco, you know, all these uh, tribal things going on in that. And, uh, the people that really open to music, uh, you know, a song like that, that's, you know, <laughs> those, those, you know, two identities aren't supposed to mix, but right. mixing things up is what moves life ahead. So I, I want to, uh, you know, just talk about this episode versus the ones that are coming down the pike. So this one is an introduction of Paul and a, an introduction of what this show is. Uh, the private press is not Discography, but it is under the Discography umbrella. And it really is Paul's show. And this one is really just, you know, I want to kind of go through and Talk about your life and, and what led you here. So you worked at Bleaker Bob's, right? Well, no, actually, it was a store called Village Oldies, which is a legendary store that went back uh, to pre-psychedelic -pre days. And when that store started, Bleaker Bob and the guy who owned Village Oldies, whose uh, name was Broadway Al, were partners for a while. Then they had a falling out and Bleaker Bob uh, established his own store. And by the time I got to New York City, Bleaker Bob's was on, you know, the the beam of all the punk stuff coming out and uh, and so forth. And uh, Village Oldies had become more of a... <laughs> a twilight zone of a, of a record store. There, were, there was still... There were punk in there and so forth in that, but it was more about the oldies and, and so forth. And uh, I do want to say that in your book, you go into great detail about your your time there. And it is very fascinating. So I don't want to put too much of that stuff in here because the idea also is that we got to get people to buy your book because it's one of the one of the better books I own. A lot of good stuff about your time during, working at record stores. How many how many years uh, were you in that scene? I was uh, from the time I came to New York. I instantly got uh, that job, and this was a time when I, I needed to come up with ninety eight dollars a month. So the fact that it store paid two dollars uh, an hour and all the beer you could drink and so forth, and you could just play records all day and have fun. What was the thing, but I stayed there about three years. Then briefly, I moved to a, the opposite of a, that sort of record store environment, a, a store called Second Coming Records, which uh, we don't need to get into. But uh, around the time I did that was when I first started putting ads in Goldmine. And uh, I just had a curiosity. Why don't you want why don't you want to get into it? I'm so curious. <laughs> Oh, they're, they're just like Village Oldies, I mean, there are a million more stories uh, than even in the book. And this right. place, uh, there are, you know, a lot of the things, and I noticed this when I was even reviewing uh, some of the records and things, there are certain things that I thought, well, I can't really reveal this information. Right, right. But let me say, I could probably, you know, reveal that uh, the guy who ran Second Coming 
was a business shark. He was one of the biggest bootleggers in New York. There was a huge case where eventually, uh, you know, they confiscated hundreds of thousand dollars in cash and pressing machines. And uh, let's say he had a tenuous uh, relationship with uh, mob people and so forth. And uh, thank God it's only tenuous. On and on. Yeah. 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 That, you know, the, uh, I think this is okay to say. I don't even know if he's, you know, still walks the earth, but uh, 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 not to go too far with it, but yeah, I had a, uh, a girlfriend that, that was Italian that those guys liked a lot and he was cheating on her a lot. And uh, one day they broke into his store just to freak him out and send him a message, uh, you know, don't mess around on her. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. And I, I worked there for a while, but there was the exact same time. I'd already been buying all the obscure records and private pressings and in the pre-internet days, of course, anything that wasn't, uh, you know, some, you know, Beatles butcher cover or at the time Mothers of Invention or Nas albums or stuff. Uh, anything that the store owner didn't know, and this this held true for so long, uh, any private pressing would be in the junk section. So, you know, I, I got on to that really quick and you know, I came to New York and found, oh, I can find all these, you know, German Krautrock style records and some things that came over in that. And they're all really cheap. And then, you know, I had a flashpoint once where two German guys came into Village Oldies and that was my first exposure they came in the store and i think bought a chocolate watch band on a couple of things and they said can you tell us anywhere else uh we can uh you know find these kind of records i said oh well i get off work today at eight o'clock you should really come over to my apartment and uh they were honest guys they bought like what what then was like big money six or seven hundred bucks worth of records and said oh just send them to us and they disappeared <laughs> and uh that got me into checking out Goldmine and so forth. Uh, yeah, so was that, that, was that, your, that was your first deal as a record dealer? That would have been, except uh, previous to that, uh, I was also, beside, because I was getting paid so little, although it was enough with my expenses then, I uh, gathered pretty quickly. I could go from one used record store, buy some underpriced stuff and take it to another used record store and make my rent like in one afternoon, just like taking, you know, shifting records between stores that I wasn't interested in myself, but I knew they were underpriced. <laughs> How many years did you go uh, where that was your exclusive or primary source of income? That was just, uh, you know, just shortly. It, it, it totally switched over after I had uh, quit the second uh, record shop, which also dovetailed at the time I uh, got into a relationship and stopped playing in, you know, the sorceries and the various bands I was playing in. Uh, I got into the record collecting then, you know, big time. Started putting ads in Goldmine, developed a list of contacts, started trading records with people around the world, started tracking people down uh, the private pressings to see if I could get a box and and so forth. So Now, your that, catalogs, which would seem to me to go the extra mile, many of which are reprinted in your book, um, you know, I'm not part of that world. I don't, you know, I, I didn't come up, uh, you know, taken with, with private press. So are you going above and beyond what's typical? Uh, are your catalogs truly unique? Uh, or, or are there people who are typically, instead of just putting in what condition the record is, uh, you know, going off the rails like you and, and creating yeah. these brilliant descriptors. I think I took that, you know, more to the extreme, uh, uh, driven by my passion for the records and my sense of adventure. Uh, when I was they, they read like, you can't help yourself. Yeah, it was like that. I, I would get going. I couldn't help myself. You know, uh, I, I wish I could have just spoken these things instead. I had to having to type because my mom, your book is right. Your book okay. is is, uh, is a isn't it just a transcription of what you're saying? Except for uh, the one chapter that's about like when I was a kid in Kentucky. And the one about village oldies, those two I wrote, but everything else was, uh, and this came at a time in my life when they proposed doing the book, uh, uh, Johann Kugelberg, who had uh, been getting my catalog since the late eighties had moved to New York. And, uh, you know, he was actually the first drummer in endless boogie and a bunch of other things, uh, uh, 
going on there. But with those catalogs, um, there were other people and I didn't know them until I met a couple of people in uh, in New York that were interested that came in the store. And when I started putting ads in Goldmine, I found out, oh, you know, in all, every major city in the U.S. and sometimes small towns, there's that one guy who's into this stuff. They weren't really dealing the records then. There were a few people dealing and some people overseas that would do descriptions, but not the way that, you know, I did. Uh, not, not with your level of eloquence, I'm sure. Or uh, or not to you know pump myself up too much, but you know more imagination and more excitement in my descriptions than concern for uh, hyping a record up. Uh, right, and, right, and, uh, and <laughs> because you're still honest the whole time. If you think something's kind of shitty, you're 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 not gonna uh, you're gonna uh, risk not selling the record by being honest about it right exactly and and i i would do that especially in the early days it was it was tricky too uh you know because i had spent a lot of time playing records over the phones for people but you know i get a sense of somebody's taste or they like this and i think oh they might like this and this but it's you know back in that day's money it was like 50 bucks 100 bucks a really expensive one so i'd always say you know if you're bummed out about this thing you know send it back we'll do something else but i was really concerned uh Knowing the way it is, when I open a package up, I'm excited and I get a letdown. I did not want anybody at I sent records to to open their package and not, you know, not feel like they're entering some uh, adventure and some some you know new world, something making them you know excited. And uh, so, is this your main thing? There's so many aspects of your your life and the, so many tendrils of your career. So, what? Where would you? Was this just one thing amongst many, or is it the main deal? Uh, it became the main thing uh, early 80s, 82, 83 would be the first time you know, I tracked records down and realized I wanted other copies and started trading with, you know, as I found out about them, other people. And uh, in 1982, I, by the way, just for the in case uh, you're listening to this and you didn't live through that time, is the least psychedelic year since the psychedelic era. And that includes uh, what the last 50 years. It's not a psychedelic time. And when it really started happening, uh, would have been 1985, 86, because that's when I. Uh, first started doing the catalogs the 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 very first ones and uh everything else fell by uh the wayside as far as you know playing music myself uh, even reading a book or watching a movie i would just be anxious like because <laughs> i had to be you know all day long getting all these boxes of private pressings and odd yeah. records and boxes from south america which i knew nothing about except a yeah, few yeah. things you know i always Every day I wake up, have breakfast, and I'd be playing records I never heard before for the, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, you know, for, for years. So it consumed uh, all my time. And yeah. uh, it's like me with this show. I mean, it's, it, it's all the time. When it consumes you like that, when, you know, uh, for our whole lives, we're obsessed with music. And then uh, you, f you figure out a way to, um, allow it to engulf you in a way that's productive and gives you a, a daily passion and forget about it. Right. And, and it, for me, it was driven by the sense that I was off on some expedition because yeah. time I came across some uh, fantastic thing that sounded like nothing else before. Uh, I felt like I was, you know, every time I walk into a used record store and said, where's you keep all your garbage. And I start looking through it and find some unknown psychedelic uh, private pressing or just anything that looked exotic. It was like digging for, you know, buried treasure. And, uh, and there was, I knew there was so much buried treasure out there that uh, <laughs> it was hard to not do it 24 seven. Right, right. Right. You, you, I mean, you never, as a music lover, you never reach bottom anyway, but as a private press collector, it's, it seems like it is particularly endless. And also it was like 
going into the twilight zone into a new world that exists as this alternate dimension bizarre universe even the psychedelic and garage and all the things that I formed on uh, when I first turned 12 in 1966 and heard those, you know, garage punk singles and, and that even that kind of thing, uh, you know, it, it sort of stayed uh, in, in that sort of world or something. And when I got into the other pressings, it was like, there's this parallel world, the name I used for uh, my label, in fact, in the 90s, this parallel world out there that is as rich and varied as what, you know, what everybody knows about. So let's, let's actually talk about real people, because I want to, I want to, you know, state for the record that when I started reading your book, I wasn't interested in the real people stuff. I'm a psych nerd. So when I saw the psych book, the psych records, uh, I went straight there and started, um, you know, checking those out. But what really blew me away is the fact that by the time I was done with the book, the more the more fascinating releases in it are the real people uh and that's where you really got me and changed me because um it's not something i'd ever uh, uh i'd ever been cognizant of before uh having my attention focused more on that kind of stuff so tell tell us what what is what's real people did you coin that term um and what's your experience with um you know, uh, discovering your love for what that is. Yeah, I did uh, coin the term, and it was uh, the crucial fall of 1977 when the package came to where I was living in New Jersey. We had a little ad in the aquarium because Aquarium, a, a New Jersey entertainment newspaper, uh, advertising that we had a recording studio in the basement. And Kenneth Higney saw that and sent this package and said, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to record anything, but can you help me promote my music? And when that came and I listened to the record and my friends there uh, as well that were uh, living at the house at the time and my band and so forth heard the record, they were astonished, but they had the thing like, this is, you know, everything's wrong with this record, but I love it. They, they at least made that, you know, perception where they weren't doing the thing that happened during the incredibly strange music fad of the nineties and so forth, where these records, uh, people are like listening to like a novelty, something to yeah, you hold it in an arm's distance, arm's distance and make fun of it and, and think or, or don't uh, realize the depth of this because you're you're put off you know by by this is oh this this person has no talent they would think or something this you know, is it's not. like that it's like that guy william hung from american idol you know there's this culture now that's accepted where the audience is pointing and laughing and it's mm-hmm. usually a fat, it's a fat guy falling or a dumb person saying something stupid um and it's uh i find it disturbing and so what I really connect with uh, in terms of your approach to this stuff is it completely supersedes and transcends all that bullshit. Uh, I think so. And I've certainly had a lot of uh, experience dealing with uh, even before it became what it is today with a William Hung thing or something like that, dealing uh, with people that I knew they're, they're really smart. They know good music and that, but somehow they don't get this. And I think uh, that plays in a little bit to the real people thing. And of course, it's you know my thing that there's a real person behind this record. And getting back to uh, the thing with Kenneth Higney being such a revelation for me is I thought this is one of the most brilliant artistic expressions and sound I've ever heard. It sounds like nothing else. It captures a personality like I felt the first time I realized how good it was. I was connected to this person as a human being. I was getting so much emotion and feeling out of it. And and yet it remains so mysterious because it's a different mind than mine. Yet I, I, I have this magic door in there. And uh, with uh, real people... Uh, also, that record did something that changed my thing, because when, when I first got into the psychedelic 
records and hearing the doors and Jimi hendrix and all these people and the beatles uh as a kid they were like giants to me like like somebody you know like somebody would think right like mythical movie star is a giant and i'm a little ant and i heard kenneth higney it leveled the playing field i said there are people too and it's intense because you're listening it's no longer a record this is like uh, the apex of somebody's life and it's predetermined already because so much time has gone by that this is their time coming and going that's what it represents so Mm -hmm. it's um very dramatic whereas just another release off the assembly line for you know somebody else who's got a multi-album deal it right. does not have that kind of urgency built into it and so that's part of what uh what sort of goes into this idea that you talk about in your book about growing a new pair of ears and i yeah, felt yeah. it happening to me it did happen to me um that was the thing that if anything uh changed my life um because music is such a key part of my life and to be able to to come at this whole genre or uh, movement or whatever you want to call it uh in a completely different way is entirely down to you that's certainly is a i feel like i was a channel for that it had to happen i was on on it early and uh and it happened to you immediately right because higney's first the first one that, that crossed your path changed my life i had some other things that were unusual and i had other private pressings but up to that point they were mostly you know like garage site bands and this and that uh but that that was the one that flipped the switch on for me and then i can't remember now i'd I'd have to think too much right now but there were a few other things that I had accumulated by then that that cast the light on it like whoa okay well so are you are you still practicing co- uh, collecting and dealing with uh, as much intensity through the night no I, w- I went through it so intensely for so long have you heard everything no there are things I haven't I still when something amazing or somebody turns me on to something that has been uh uncovered that wasn't known before and yeah, I, I will still listen. Uh, the other thing is, uh, and I want to say that you know, I I went through and as you were recommending these these records in your in your book, I'm listening to everything. I, I there's only eight records in your book that are not available either on streaming services or I could not find to download, and right. they're still on a separate list that I plan on uh, getting or you know finding at some point back in the day uh days of the adventure and going out to used record stores and that uh you knew that uh all this knowledge was not assembled and you you had that feeling i'm the first person to stumble across this this is really significant you know And, and back in the day as i developed the network of people uh around the world you know it was extremely secretive people would send me tapes of things they discovered and they would scramble the sequence of the songs and not give any information so i could just hear the music because they didn't want anybody to know and lots of guys had these you know sort of things and would have to judge it totally just on the value of the music you use the new ears that that were growing more and more in that process a good example of the record uh, of a record like that was one called mystery meat which somebody had sent me a tape of and uh the fidelity on the tape was terrible and uh, it made it sound more mysterious and nobody knew about this record some secretive stuff you know later somebody discovered it and found them in that and when i finally heard a reissue of the record it sounded much more normal <laughs> or something yeah. i said well actually this is like a really good garage band that you can imagine like a little bit of psychedelic in there somehow but that murky tape made it sound way more psychedelic and right. uh, you know, so there were these big mysteries uh you know around that people talk of and you know I, I remember I tried to find the guy I found out who the guy's name was that had the mystery meat album and 
somebody said he doesn't have a phone and so forth. And he was in the Midwest somewhere and I got his address and I wrote him letters and he'd never write back to me. <laughs> and I was going nuts thinking, I know who has this record and I can't. <laughs> I love how my hunt for you mirrors your hunt for a lot of these people. And, and, and by the way, the, you know, um, in looking at the road before us, uh, uh, Paul and I have a you know mutually cohered uh, outlook on what this show is, and the private press is not going to be just Paul and I. We're, we're definitely going to be tracking these people down. Uh, it's something that I think Paul, you used to do with more fervor, maybe uh, you know twenty, thirty years ago. But right, and it'll be a lot easier now. Of course, yeah, I've noticed already how to get through to some some people and so forth uh, because of. Uh, you know, the, the internet and so forth. But back when I first started tracking people down, I had to go down to the public library in New York. Michael list of every name on the back of all these albums, where right. it was from and write down, dig the phone book up for Topeka, Kansas or wherever, and write down everybody with that same last name and have the yep. mountain of phone calls and just start calling, figuring out, okay, one of them is going to be their uncle or something. Even if I didn't see the name of the actual person on the record and so forth. So, uh, it was tough then. I was persistent. Yeah. There were a lot of people I couldn't uh, couldn't find. But then again, a lot of greats, you know. I can't wait. Stories. You know, personally, you know, you know, you and I have spoken about this. You know, as part of the format of of this show, one of the things I'm really excited about is the human element. That you know, ironically, the more you know, intensely, ridiculously culty, small, niche-like that we get with music, the more it becomes uh, the kind of thing that literally anybody can relate to because right. you get super obscure and you get just one-on-one, -on -one, a person with their dreams going down, you know, and uh, creating 50 records. Uh, and it means so much more to him than whatever, you know, some big release uh, could ever possibly mean to anyone. So, you know, toward that end, you know, the way that the private press is going to differ from discography proper is number one, it's going to be shorter because each episode is not really about a band as much as it is about, you know, in all likelihood, the one record they made. In some instances, it's somebody who's made a bunch of records, but and that'll be a longer show. You know, generally, it's going to be about one record or the history of one band that made one record. Just like Discography, uh, there will be a star rating for it. We're also going to be talking about uh, how many copies are in existence of its original pressing, uh, the worth of the of the LP based on obviously on its condition, uh, whether or not it's been reissued, uh, whether it's on streaming services. So how you can track this shit down so that you're not just listening to two dudes talking about it, um, whether or not Paul has had personal encounters with the artists that we're talking about, where they are now. And then, you know, to me, kind of the most crucial thing, I'm in, in a shorthand sense, I'm calling it uh, dashed hopes crossover material. And this is sort of the, the dichotomy of where this person or people saw themselves, let's say 50 years ago. Uh, maybe they were a self-styled uh, psychedelic guru, and now they're an accountant or their grandpa or their you know what is that gulf how big is that gulf where did their life go speaking of that gulf uh one of the things that happened to me uh especially since most of these records were the one off the person put their heart and soul into it they had to be so driven to actually get it out there and then then they have their records sitting there and what do you do next all of a sudden it stays in the neighborhood <laughs> or yeah. something Nobody yeah. hears it. they get frustrated they think you know there's also dude there's failure but uh one of the beauties uh of you know people do you know people who've completed a huge herculean project and then sat scared and instead of uh trying they just sat on it i know people i know plenty of people like yeah that. and i think some of them they, they even tried, but the way the world was back then, 
they the major labels controlling basically everything the market and that you know they could try to sell their records if they did a live show or uh you know send them off sometimes a lot of the rarest uh private pressings they uh the person would send them off to the major labels and of course <laughs> nothing ever happened and uh one of the beauties uh and one of the double-edged swords of the internet for me relating to this is uh some of the multiple times the person I tracked down finally and got a hold of and said, I love your, your record, you know, uh, I'll give you $50 or a hundred dollars for every copy you can find, which was big money then knowing I could double my money at least or mm -hmm. something, uh, part of the motivation. But multiple times when I finally got a hold of the person, they were convinced I was one of their friends playing a practical joke on them, you know, because they had so little su success and their dreams were dashed so much that, uh, you know, decades went by and, you know, they, sometimes they hadn't even, you know, thought of it or something. And then uh, as the internet did get going later, uh, when I still was uh, tracking some people down in that, uh, I could say, you know, say to them, you know, I, uh, you, you're not lost in time. You should uh, look your record up on YouTube. You know, 40,000 people have heard your record, which is like, uh, you know, <laughs> like 39,500 more than ever heard it back then. You're and not, it's not, it's not just lost the time. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm Facebook friends with Ruth Ann Friedman. Do you right. Know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mindy, yeah. her, everybody, Bob Lind, I'm Facebook friends with, you know, these are people who are like, I don't understand how, you know, there's a second win happening for my most obscure record, which nobody bought the first time round. It does give artists such as them a, as another lease on life, which is amazing. Well, absolutely. They're in a position where anybody in the world can hear about it with just pushing a button if they hear something. And the accessibility that way, you know, definitely things go viral when some astonishing yeah. private pressing does come up. Some of them languish and uh, not that many hits, uh, you know, including some that I think are fantastic. But eventually the cream rises to the top and uh, yeah. something's astonishing, you know. Uh, Steve Morgan, not a private pressing, but it was a good case, you know, and he had some success then and there's a long story and some tragedy and what happened where it didn't happen. But now you look on, uh, on uh, YouTube and millions of people have listened to his music. So I right. think it's so wonderful in the autumn years of a lot of these uh, people, especially private press people like uh, in their autumn years, something that meant so much to them in their youth. And when they were, you know, feeling creative and had something to say they, that, that, it got it took a long time but they reach beyond their wildest dreams mm -hmm. and that's well said and the only other thing i, I want to talk about before we sign off here is about uh endless boogie so we haven't really gotten around to that you are a rock star you've had a band for 25 fucking years now and you have six records you have eps um your music is what well, kind of a mishmash of um uh krautrock the stooges um uh, flaming groovy zz top right yeah those are some of the elements and uh it goes different uh places i would say i'm a cult rock star and it's a full circle for me because when i was a child in uh kentucky and uh isolated in a very environment i wanted so bad you know to be in a band and i followed that pursued that didn't really know what i was doing but came up to new york you know and got to play at cbgb's and max's kansas city and that and then dropped it for the record collecting thing and because of the record collecting thing, uh, Johan Kugelberg and Jesper Eklo, who's the, the ringleader of Endless Boogie, yeah, I met them because of that. And then they said, oh, let's jam together, you know, and stuff with intentions. And it went on for several years that way. It was just getting together and jamming, having fun, making tapes. It's a bunch of guys that emanate from, from Matador, correct? Uh, Jesper uh, did... Uh, Johan came over when they founded Matador and was one of the original uh, 
people at Matador. Just out of curiosity, is that the Stephen Malkmus connection? Because your first gig was- Oh, yes, 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 yes. uh, Because he was on uh, Matador and Jesper turned him on to Australian rock, lots of things. Uh, uh, Before I came into the picture, uh, more in the mid to late 90s when I, you know, uh, started hanging out with those uh, guys and met, and, met them so yeah that 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 is the connection there uh and uh you know steve of course being uh huge you know into record collecting and too uh speaking of which uh he loves the new dawn and he lives around there and so forth and so he has the the wide open ears so it came sort of through that and a little bit we don't like this idea of uh you know people you know people emphasizing oh a brooklyn band matador employees or something because really we're all music freaks from childhood and so forth and of course happened uh they happened to gravitate to your work working in the music uh industry and so forth but uh there's some kind of thing and uh, i'll bring up canned heat quickly because of this uh there's a certain thing i've encountered like you know oh you know music you know hipsters etc working for labels and stuff somehow you can't really be authentic like you know with that sort of thing going on like like some unknown band from somewhere that you know that thing we're getting back to about being tainted by the music industry or something mm-hmm. i say to people well you know can he you know and this is record collectors too but is the yeah, basis record collector he, we're huge record collectors oh know? yeah no especially, not- <laughs> especially especially uh uh bob yeah bob height and alan wilson right yeah. exactly but if you look, you want to talk, if you want to go at it, uh, Bob and Al, very different level of songwriting acumen. Oh, yeah. Alan Wilson is. I mean, Al, Al, Al is version. one of the great unsung geniuses of all time. Alan Wilson took it to the deeper place. And of course, he he was, you know, more coming from the country blues and and uh, and such things. Right. He, he is uncanny. And also, like, I highly recommend his bi- uh, biography, of course, and so forth. Living an extraordinary, tragic life. Yeah. When you know about that, it just makes the music more human. He's real people. He's yeah. the Yeah, he is real people. And he's also probably the least celebrated member of the 27 Club. Right. And, and uh, maybe the first. <laughs> yeah. One of- uh, is he before Brian Jones? Uh, not Brian Jones, yeah, but before Jimmy and Janice. Definitely a trendsetter, but not in a good way. Um, so, okay, this, Paul Paul has tons of records, tons of EPs. He's got the great book. Uh, besides everything that we've mentioned that is a necessity to purchase, uh, anything else you want to you plug, sir? I would say I would want to plug what is coming down the pike, what we're doing here. Oh, unquestionably. So people that are listening to this and check out the music, check out the music, spread it around to your friends, spread it around. So, you know, become a member of Patreon. Uh, You will have um, access to a weekly show. Uh, It it will be weekly from, um, uh, you know, for the private press, amongst all kinds of other goodies. Uh, Patreon, you know, we are actually, there's different tiers, but you're going to have access to a tremendous amount of content uh, that you normally would not if you're just going to check out the podcast proper. Um, Become a member of Patreon. Uh, We will see you uh, for episode number one. Uh, just around the bend, it's going to be on a band called Fraction. Paul, mm-hmm. we'll see him on the lathe of the private press. <laughs> <laughs>